Uh, good evening, everyone. Hi. Welcome to Arnold Feeney. My name is Helen Davis. I'm the Director of Audience Engagement. So thank you so much for coming here tonight, where we launch our series of cultural education talks. Um, Arnold Feeney has been a member of the Bristol Cultural Education Partnership for the last four years, which is a fantastic group of people who come together on a voluntary basis to just do their thing and celebrate culture in Bristol. And Sam Thompson's going to talk a little bit more about that partnership and then introduce the speakers that we have tonight. So I'm just going to hand you over to Sam. Thanks for coming. Just one uh, little bit of housekeeping. We've got questions later on. There's roving mics, so please do just wait for the mic to come to you to repeat your question because we're recording it. We're making audio recordings, so we need to be able to hear you and everybody else needs to be able to hear you. So just pause for the mic to get to you when you have questions. Thanks very much, and I'll hand over to Sam. Hello, um, it's great to see so many people here. Thank you very much for coming. Um, as Helen said, my name's Sam Thompson. I'm the Director of Civic and Cultural Engagement in the Faculty of Arts, Creative Industries and Education at UWE. This evening's lecture and the series which follows is an outcome from the work, as Helen mentioned, that we've been doing as a group, I suppose, through the Cultural Education Partnership over the last four years. For those of you who don't know, and I've been fielding quite a lot of questions this afternoon, we had a cultural education fair with lots of, lots of people, teachers coming in to look at the sorts of things that arts and cultural organisations do in the city. And lots of people saying, what is the cultural education partnership? What does it do? How do I join? What, you know, how do I go about engaging with it further? So for those of you that haven't been involved in that, it was established following the Henley Review um, in 2012 and in response to one of the recommendations that came out of that, which was for organisations who are working in arts and culture to work more closely together and to find ways, or it was a way of encouraging, I suppose, groups to find space to work as a network and to work collaboratively, to think about how collectively we can support increased access to cultural education and to really high-quality opportunities for young people, right the way through from school, but also into the labour market. How do we support young people who currently are finding it very difficult to access opportunities in these sectors to move through into them. So Bristol was one of the first pilot areas for cultural education partnerships. Great Yarmouth was uh, the second and Barking and Dagenham was the third. There was a review of those um, after a couple of years which essentially suggested they'd been really successful. Interestingly, in each of those areas, the models that they took were completely different. So in Bristol, it's a kind of network of organisations, people that come together because they want to be in that space, want to look for opportunities and find ways of working together. In Great Yarmouth, the organisations were seeking to increase the kind of cultural activity that was available to young people and to amplify the reach of some of the small amount of activity perhaps that was there. In Barking and Dagenham, the cultural education partnership has been led very much by the school sector and the formal education sector, so it takes a very different form. Part of, I think, the success of it has been in its ability to respond to the context that it's working in and to work with networks and organisations and you know, established ways of working and think about how we can work better through this organisation rather than trying to duplicate it or replace things that are already in existence. I lead the skills and education strand of work, and when I say I lead it, really, I sort of loosely corral various people to do things and send things uh, out at various points. The way that the strands of work have, have developed are by people coming forward and saying, actually, we're really interested in this and we want to work on this. Is anybody else interested in this area of work? Does anybody else want to get together and think about this? 
whilst every organisation involved in it has a really strong cultural education activity, they're already doing lots of really excellent work, the reach, I suppose, of this strand of work has been thinking about, and the, the kind of role I've had in that, is thinking about city-wide. How might we work? What could we augment? How do we... How, where are there opportunities to support that? And certainly with my kind of head and my thinking about the university and our role as an anchor institution in the city, how do we support increased opportunities? How do we work with organisations to reach all young people? And as I said, not duplicating activity that's already taking place, but thinking about how we support that to develop. We've already had some, I think, really quite amazing success. Almost immediately after the Cultural Education Partnership was set up in the city, the Arts Council launched the Creative Education Programme, which was a national programme offering match funding, 50% funding, to organisations to create jobs for young people. So not to run projects or not to do um, you know, small little bits and pieces, which are absolutely valid, but actually to create first jobs that gave people a, a footstep into the industry, into the sector, young people who are really facing barriers to access. We, through this group, were able to activate that very quickly and put in a bid um, for 72 paid internships for young people aged 16 to 24. So it wasn't just about UE graduates, although some graduates were involved in that from both universities, actually. It was for all young people in the city. And again, that, that role and being part of those networks and being able to work together moves perhaps beyond the kind of individual focus and individual interests of individual organisations and enables us to work collectively. So on the back of that, we got 72 um, paid internships, which were run through organisations all over the city. They did an amazing job in supporting young people into work and on into sustainable careers. On the back of that, we, we wrote another bid. Um, and again, it was this group that initiated it, authored it, submitted it, secured the funding. With that scheme, it was really good. You could apply for 10% money to support an administrator for it. And so we agreed with the LEP, which was just emerging at that point around Temple Quarter Zone, that that post would be hosted there. Um, with the best of it, it didn't make any sense for it to be in an individual organisation or to be at the university. You know, the point was to try and support reaching sort of people outside of those we're already working with. So that post was hosted there, and the last of those placements are coming to an end. In total, there were 154 paid, six-month paid posts, and out of those, I think there were eight two-year apprenticeships. So it said it's not just graduates that that was working with. It was right across the age spectrum of 16 to 24. All those young people had faced significant barriers to finding ways into work or finding ways into opportunities. And so this group and through the organisations that they work with have been able to really impact. In total, if, to get into the economics, which we endlessly need to, it brought more than £880,000 into the city, which wasn't there before, to support young people. So again, whilst there's a loose network of organisations, actually the impact that that's having is already, I think, significant. And I lead one strand of it, or work with people to lead one strand of it. There are five or six more working on all sorts of different agendas. If you are interested, please, there's some leaflets outside. We can get you the information about the kind of websites, etc. Please do have a look and get in touch if you'd like to know more. So Bristol, in terms of this lecture series, it's emerged out of that work. There are a lot of conversations that happen in those rooms and amongst those groups of people, which are really exciting, really interesting, challenging, but we felt really had a broader audience and would be great to actually engage with more and more people and more and more sectors or silos across different sectors to think about those challenges. 
Bristol's uniquely placed to shape the debate on the role of cultural education. It's a city defined by diversity and future-facing creative drive. You know, look at all the organisations that we have here. We hope the lecture series will help to consolidate Bristol's position as a centre of excellence in cultural education and to make it visible and to make the work that's happening here visible. To also bring key national figures, policymakers, local experts and practitioners together to lead the way and to think about new ways of how we support high quality cultural education for all children and young people. So we're delighted to be able to welcome Darren Henley, Chief Executive of Arts Council England, to open the Cultural Education Lecture Series. A series which we hope, um, yeah, we, we sort of promise, but we really hope, will be both stimulating and provocative in equal measure. And we hope will speak to the vital importance of cultural education in all its varied and powerful forms. Now, Darren, I'm sure, doesn't need an introduction, um, but has an incredible kind of wealth of knowledge and spent 25 years working in radio, led Classic FM, has been appointed OBE for services to music, wrote the Henley Review that the Cultural Education Partnership was set up in response to. So this is an amazing opportunity for us. We're really, really pleased that you've been able to join us. So I'm going to ask you to join me in welcoming Darren. We'll hand over to him for the uh, evening's proceedings to begin. Thank you very much. Sorry, that's what I was just going to say. There you go. Thank you very much. I'm going to start with an apology. Um, uh, we also have sponsors on the, on the screen here. Um, I'm sponsored by Lemsip and Strepsil this evening. So yesterday, uh, I had no voice at all. So if I cough and splutter a little bit through this, I apologise to you uh, before I start. But thank you for that, that very warm introduction, and thank you for inviting me here to speak to you today. I'm especially pleased to be talking about cultural education uh, and a subject that is, is, is very, very dear to me. Um, as you've heard before, I joined the Arts Council. I led uh, two government reviews on cultural education and work with and for children and young people is integral to absolutely everything that we do at Arts Council England. We have a 10-year strategy with five goals that can be summarised as excellence, access, resilience, skills and children and young people. And our work with children and young people comes under what we call Goal 5. But that doesn't mean that it's the last on the list. To me, it means that it underpins absolutely everything else that we do. We're the National Development and Investment Agency for Art and Culture. We work to ensure the overall vitality of the cultural sector so that the best of art and culture can be available for everyone and so that the many dividends that art and culture can bring into our lives are shared right across the nation. And I, here's a little plug for you, I talk about these in my brand new book. Um, it's called uh, The Arts Dividend, Why Investment in Culture Pays. And it chronicles my journeys across the length and breadth of England, from Cumbria to Cornwall, during my first year as the Arts Council's Chief Executive. And I believe very strongly that arts and culture thrives right across this country and should thrive right across this country. It's not something that should only exist within the M25. So I've spent a lot of time seeing a lot of art, a lot of culture, and meeting a lot of people who make all that happen right across the country. And in the book, I, I argue um, how important a rich cultural life is to successful communities, whether they're big cities like Bristol, smaller towns, or tiny villages. And these dividends, uh, creative, educational, social, around our health and well-being, reputational and economic, are all interwoven. So if you want to build the strong communities of tomorrow, these world-beating cities, 
you need to invest in creativity today. Because building a community or a city is not only about bricks and mortar, the physical infrastructure. It's about investing in people and also investing in skills. It's about developing the creativity of our young people. Because when we invest in them, we're investing in all of our futures. And I'm unashamedly using words like investment and dividend here, because I believe very strongly that what we do at the Arts Council is to make investments. We don't subsidize things, we invest. And these investments pay real dividends in real people's lives. Sometimes the dividends are economic and we should celebrate that, but often they reap other benefits that are just as important. Because being surrounded by great art and culture, creativity and creative people enriches all of our lives. Engagement in arts and culture helps us to lead happier, healthier lives, whether we're participants or audiences. Our greatest villages, towns and cities put culture at the heart of their growth strategies. This investment in the arts helps us to build a narrative of success for our cities, enhancing their reputation both at home and abroad. And an excellent cultural education in subjects such as art and design, dance, drama and music is a dividend in itself, but it's also key to unlocking so much more. It's the bedrock of building the audiences of tomorrow and of growing the artists, the makers, the curators, the designers, the performers of the future. Because it's not just all about infrastructure, it's also about building capacity, developing leadership, and creating an environment within which our best creatives can thrive. So, what makes a world-beating city? Well, obviously it helps if you have a geographical or historic advantage. There are many cities that have been blessed by location, by being great trading cities, great capital cities, or at the centre of world cultures. And many still have the advantage of that legacy. But we mustn't only think in terms of size or obvious international reputation. There are many cities in England, and not necessarily the obvious ones, that have been world leaders in the past and can be again in the future. Think of Hull with its trading and fishing history, or Sheffield with its mining and steel manufacturing. Plymouth was a great port. Sunderland, which once led the world in glass manufacturing and shipbuilding. Or Manchester, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and a place with a long tradition of cultural and creative practice. Essentially, I would maintain that a world-beating city is always a creative city. And these days, it would mean having a thriving local industry and a thriving higher education sector, both of them embedded in their local communities and with strong national and international connections. A city a little bit like Bristol, maybe. The cultural environment is intrinsic to achieving all of this. It's increasingly the medium for higher education and industry to engage with each other and with their local communities. We're seeing this up and down the country, where innovative partnerships between cultural organisations, local authorities and universities are already helping to shape creative environments. In Derby, the university now runs the theatre as part of its hands-on approach to learning. On Teesside, MIMA, run by Teesside University, is becoming a creative making space, exploring the industrial heritage of Middlesbrough. In Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire University is helping to reinvigorate the city's infrastructure, with plans to build a brand new multi-million pound National Centre for Ceramic Education and Research. As well as researching new technologies, it will train the next generation of skilled workers. 
Let me pause to underline the importance of, of universities as cultural custodians in their cities. It's a subject I'll be talking about in another speech here in Bristol tomorrow. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of institutions like the University of the West of England as leaders in developing arts and culture in a city. UE's investment, leadership, expertise and determination is one of the key reasons that the fortunes of the city of Bristol are on the up. The students, the academics and the institution itself are all contributors to the sense of creative buzz that you feel when you come to Bristol. We've seen what investing in art and culture can do to change the perception and swing the fortunes of a city. In Liverpool, as European City of Culture 2008, or for Hull, as UK City of Culture 2017. Now, back in 2003, Hull was officially the crappest town in England to live in, according to the book Crap Towns. Thirteen years later, and the Rough Guys names it as one of the top ten cities you should visit in the world. There's no better example of what sustained strategic investment in arts and culture can do to change both the perception and the reality of life in a city. And it's not just about changing how all of us feel about Hull, it's about changing the way in which the people who live there think about their city. There are very real dividends from investment in art and culture, but it must be sustainable and it must reflect the needs and wishes of its community. I think that we live in the age of creativity, driven by a rapid pace of technological and digital change. It's integral to everything we do. Nothing stands still in this world. There's constant innovation and the opportunity that this brings to improve our products, our businesses, our environment, and the quality of all of our lives. It's the reason why the creative industries are the fastest growing sector of the economy, making a big contribution locally, nationally, and internationally. And we have to respond to this with ingenuity, using all the opportunities that innovation offers. That growth needs more talent. It needs a better skilled workforce. After all, we are a creative nation, and that awareness needs to be part of our education. Natural creativity is encouraged and fueled by creative practice of all sorts. So we need to make sure that we have the strongest possible cultural education. So what do we mean by cultural education, and how can we fuel creativity through it? A cultural education can take many forms, from teaching art subjects within the curriculum to practicing the arts in and out of school. And make no mistake here, subjects such as art and design, dance, drama and music should be an important part of every child's school life, particularly for those young people from tougher economic backgrounds, because school may be the only place that they get to encounter these art forms. And if we're going to grow our talent base in this country, we need to, to nurture the talent from youngsters of all backgrounds, because talent is absolutely everywhere, but the opportunity for that talent to come to the surface is not. So we need to work together to shape an environment for learning and for growing with art and culture at its heart. For me, the four key elements of a good cultural education are teaching children about the best of our cultural heritage and creative thought, the development of analytical and critical skills that can enhance children's knowledge and understanding, empowering children to participate and create new culture for themselves, and developing an individual's personal creativity. If children experience a rich cultural education, they will progress as well-rounded students who have the confidence and the skills to explore and develop their own natural creativity. 
A recent report from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport found that taking part in cultural activities improved attainment in literacy, maths and language. Participation in arts activities at school was linked to higher employability and an increased likelihood of attaining a degree. Cultural education turns STEM into STEAM. It brings the curriculum to life and it creates individuals who are more inquisitive, more persistent, more imaginative, more disciplined and more collaborative. Other nations understand this. In Japanese schools, early years students spend more time on the arts than science, yet Japan scores top for science in the international rankings. In America, the Turnaround Schools Initiative is using an arts-based approach to transform the fortune of schools. Everything is done through music, singing, dancing, painting, and the use of expressive language. Children will reap the benefits of a good cultural education throughout their life. Some will enjoy the culture for the intrinsic value it brings them, for the sheer joy of it. Others will learn skills that they will put to good use in whatever field of work they end up in. And some will utilize their cultural education with a career in the creative industries. And we really need them. So the country will be richer from a strong cultural education system and the talent it produces. And their communities will benefit too. I'm absolutely convinced that this investment in creativity is more important now than ever, as we move into a future that will require new perspectives and ever more resourceful individuals. We need to use the diversity of our nation. A cultural education is all about inclusivity, about drawing on the talents of all our children and young people, no matter where they start in life. It breaks down barriers. It's a passport to our shared national culture. It creates culturally literate individuals. It makes them all insiders, understanding what is said and being familiar with what is meant so that our national culture is not synonymous with entrenched economic or social privilege. Shared values are built around that shared national culture. Equality of access to that culture strengthens those values. And the arts have an irreplaceable part to play in strengthening the values by which our society functions, those values of tolerance, empathy and understanding. These are British values that we should all be proud of and they are needed now more than ever. If we wish to use all our talent, offer opportunity for all and increase social mobility, then access to art and culture must be high on the agenda, whether in school or out of school. It should especially be available to those children who have the least opportunity to enjoy it those from deprived backgrounds who are least likely to engage with cultural activities and will otherwise grow up to perpetuate a cycle of exclusion. It's a national tragedy that talented young individuals are failing to achieve their potential. And from a commercial point of view, it makes no business sense for the country to make so little use of one of its greatest assets, the talent of its young people. The Arts Council will continue to champion the place of arts in the curriculum but we also acknowledge that we must use every possible resource to ensure that all children have access to a quality cultural education, whether that is in or out of school. We identified nine principles that should be part of every child's cultural life. Every child should be able to create, to compose, and to perform in their own musical or artistic work. They should all be able to visit, to experience, and to participate in extraordinary work. They should be able to know more, to understand more, and to review the experiences they've had. Accomplishing this for all children and young people is a massive task because the social and cultural landscape of our nation is so varied. 
and the economic challenges are as acute as the geographic one. But it's an urgent task. As I said, the world is changing fast, and we can't afford to be left behind. And it's often the case that there are assets available. They're simply unconnected or lack sufficient profile. That's why last year, the Arts Council launched the Cultural Education Challenge, a national call to action, pushing the issue of cultural education back up the, culture, the public agenda. It was, as we've heard, something we've successfully piloted here in Bristol over the past few years. And now we're widening that learning out from Bristol right across the country. The Cultural Education Challenge brings together schools, higher education institutions, local authorities, central government, arts organisations and businesses. It does this through creating cultural education partnerships that bring people and resources together to form joined up and coherent cultural education offers. And in the process, it builds strong partnerships that are focused on the specific needs of each individual place and that build on the sense of crucial sense of, of identity of each place around the country. So in addressing the needs of our children, we are strengthening our whole community. Every city, town and community needs good schools and good schools need art and culture so that the children and young people can reach their creative potential. To build the world-beating cities of tomorrow, we must inspire the children of today. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Darren. I'd like to invite our panel to uh, come and join me on the stage, or to join Darren more to the point rather than me. Um, we're going to move into a discussion which is going to be chaired by Phil. Um, if you want to come up to the stage, and then I'll introduce you, if that's okay. Thank you. Sorry, thank you. I'm sure many of you uh, need no introduction, but uh, bear with me. Um, for those who don't uh, know, and to reiterate or remind people, as well as Darren, brilliant to have you on the panel. Um, next to Darren, Thangham Debonair, so Parliament MP for Bristol West and Opposition Whip, I understand, uh, recently into the role. Um, Phil Gibby, who is the Director of Arts Council Southwest. Mena Fombo, who is the Young People's Programme Manager from Knoll West Media Centre. And Thomas Hamill, who's the Head of Performing Arts and Music at Merchants Academy. Um, it's brilliant to have you all here. We're really pleased that you could join us. Phil, if I can pass over to you, you can take it from here. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Sam. Um, I, I hate to start on a dull technical level, but I don't think any of us as the panel can see any of you because the lights are shining right at us, and I'm wondering if you could affect some sort of brilliantly shared interactive <coughs> lighting state so we can all see each other and have a lovely time. Is that possible? No. Not yet, or possibly no. No. Uh, oh, but it's a bit of change of lighting state at the back. Mm. That's that's good. I think it's that that killer beam of spotlights up there that are probably doing for us actually. Fine, we'll, we'll see where we get to. Excellent. Right, so this is the question and answer session. So what I thought we might do to begin with is I'll, I'll invite each of my fellow panellists to respond very briefly to, to what they heard in Darren's speech. Then we will open it up to the floor for questions. I think there are roving mics, and, and if you can say who you, are, well, who you are and where you're from, then that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, Thomas, can I start with you? 
to respond to Darren's... Yeah, I mean, I was obviously hugely inspired by what um, Darren had, had been saying. And it struck me that the, the key thing from kind of a school's point of view is that idea about unconnected assets and that we, we in schools sometimes struggle to make it out to kind of wider big participation projects because of being stuck behind kind of initiatives around um, English and maths and all that, those kind of things. And it's challenging for us to get out and really G up the value of the arts when head teachers are being so hammered regularly over and over by just looking at the, the value of just English and maths. You know, the new GCSEs give double value to English and maths, and that means that resources in the arts are even more stretched than they have ever been before. Um, but it'd be absolutely fantastic to take some of his ideas forward and share those with the head teachers around Bristol, really. Splendid. Are you, are you undertaking to take on that role, do you think? I'd absolutely love to do that. Fantastic. That's <laughs> excellent first pledge of the evening, everyone. Um, Mina, what, what, what have you heard? Um, yeah, hi. So, Mina, it's Mina, not Mena. Sorry. That's okay, no problem. Uh, Noah's Media Centre. I don't know, just by show of hands, do most people know Noah West Media Centre? Yes. Yeah, okay, great. So, yeah, Media Arts and Tech Company. And I think, um, for me, one of the, the key things that I've heard in terms of um, uh, Darren's talking about the school's engagement and the sector and so on is just, for us, it's about our theory of change, which relates to schools education, um, working with schools, working with uh, partners in the city. And for us, that looks at working with young people that are creative, um, all young people, where we engage them, um, we give them a wow experience, um, we develop their skills, ultimately develop their networks, we recognise that networks is key, um, but ultimately it's about improving their confidence so that they can go on to take that next step. Um, and for me, that particularly is around young people actually identifying that they are creative. And if, those, if the budgets in schools are cut or the, the creative provision isn't being provided in schools, we get people at 18 that have been involved in film and radio and music, and then they say, We're not, I'm not creative. And so for us, it's about improving that confidence as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and Fang, what do you think? Um, well, I was very struck by something I've heard Darren say before, which is using the word investment and the word dividends instead of the word subsidy. So I have personally pledged to take on that as, as a sort of political mantle, never to use the word subsidy. Um, and, and I've actually stopped using the word funding as well because I think investment is just a much better way of looking at it. But what I really enjoyed was hearing this range of different dividends so that the dividends, yes, there is an economic dividend and I really think politicians have got to get to grips with the fact that an economic dividend from the arts and cultures too frequently has just been completely ignored when it is one of our fastest growing sectors. And, and, it, and, it, and it also helps power all the other sectors as well from you know, engineering to medical science. Um, so I think my, my I'm going to take another pledge already, actually, I think, until okay, that's work, okay. So, I mean, it's, it's a mini pledge, but it is a pledge to challenge politicians who don't get that and to be that spokesperson. Because, you know, I was very, very privileged to have an extraordinarily good cultural education from which I have benefited and continue to benefit. So I'm, that's my pledge, Bill. Excellent. Good, good, good work. And can I, can I ask you a sort of a supplementary question on that? You which can. Is, I, I, so I... In my, in my life, I've spent an awful lot of time meeting members of Parliament, and, and one of the observations I've made over about the last year is the intake of MPs from 2015. There, there seem to be more people who have got first-hand experience of arts and culture, mm -hmm. or are better able to articulate its value across um, different different areas of life. Are you feeling that? Are you feeling that? I, mean, I know you went there before 2015, but do, do you feel there's a cohort of you I think batting for I arts and culture? I definitely feel there's a cohort of us batting for arts and culture, but I think it might also be, and this is this is completely guesswork. I haven't measured this properly. That Pretty much, most of us, not all, but most of us have spent our adult lives doing other things other than politics. And so from wherever we came, we've probably had time and opportunity to experience arts and culture rather than yeah. being completely trammeled into a Westminster mould. 
So I think that might be part of it, but I, th I think it's a good theory. Good stuff. And Darren, it'd be a bit odd to ask you to respond to your own speech. Although I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> We're very, very <laughs> <laughs> I thought, as I was saying, I thought this is, this is quite good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there we are, no, no, need for, no need for modesty around here. But um, is, there any, is there any comeback you want to bring to, to anything you've heard here? Or is, is there sort of, if, if we invited you to distill your speech down to one handy soundbite or one key message, what, what would that well, I think single thing be? Actually, two, two things, which one in the education sector, one when we're talking about politicians, and these might be local or national politicians. Um, it is around a sense of leadership, and I think, I think one of the, th the key things is when we see in a school, for example, w there are fantastic examples of head teachers and chairs of governing bodies who absolutely understand the value and the transformative effect of art and culture on their young people's lives. There are others who frankly don't, and, um, and I think it's very unfair on those young people who may be in that school where, where that happens. And I think, so one of the things that I'm very keen on is around school governors. I'm very interested in what we can do to affect change. So actually, if everybody in this room who cares about art and culture in Bristol became a school governor, you could actually, for no cost at all, you could start to change it from the inside. Uh, because school governors, in the end, appoint head teachers. And so one of the questions you might then ask in the interview is what you think about art and culture. Uh, and you know, we could actually make some really big changes there. And governing bodies, it's a voluntary thing. They do amazingly good work. And let me, you know, head teachers do amazingly good work as well, uh, as do all teachers. And I, I think it, but I do think that we really do see some changes in the life opportunities for young people who have music, dance, drama, art and design firmly in their education from, from zero to 19. Excellent. Right. So, another pledge coming on here, I think. How, hands up if you are currently a school governor. About... 3% of the people in the room. The other 97% of you, how many of you pledge to consider <laughs> applying to be a school governor somewhere in the next six months? That is a cue for you to all put up your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Limited. Work to be done. It's hard work, work but to rewarding. be done. Excellent. Very good. Right, okay, so, so those are the initial thoughts, I think, of the panel. Let's open it up to questions from the audience. We are still really struggling to be able to see the auditorium because of the row of profile lights up there. So I don't know if we can take those down. Could you, you, you may need, if you have a question, to sort of put your hand up and sort of wave around <laughs> in a, a really attention-seeking way and we, and we will get a microphone to you. Good work, uh, you're first. Lovely, that's fine lighting-wise now, thanks. So seeing as history of art has just been taken off the AQAA level scheme. What do you think that that really says about our country's attitude towards artistic education? Okay, so um, history of art question, everyone heard that okay, I think, hopefully, good. Um, Thomas, can I start with you and may, maybe give you the opportunity, um, not necessarily to talk specifically about history of art, but those wider challenges around curriculum. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd just, again, like to comment on something Darren said, which was, which was turn STEM into STEAM. STEM is a huge buzzword around our academy at the moment, and, and you know, some would say rightly so, and everyone is so absolutely focused on improving the outcomes on, on what is the 1 to 8 and the EBAC that things like history of art are, are lost in the sea. They become like a drop in the ocean of importance. Um, purely because there is so much pressure on heads and teachers from government to improve outcomes in such a narrow band of field. And unfortunately, I think until we do actually turn STEM into STEAM, 
there are going to be other subject areas that suffer. My school, for example, this year cut drama in year 10, and it was purely around a, a staffing thing, just because they needed to put more resources into English and maths. And I know that colleagues of mine would say, well, if they can't uh, read and write then, or they can't do addition, that kind of thing, then what, what, what are we preparing young people for? But as we've heard tonight, the argument really is around actually when you broaden their horizons and they learn to read and they learn to do things through the arts, actually you're setting them up in a much more positive way in the longer term. We, we don't actually teach history of art, um, and, but we do have photography and we do have fine arts school. And we have a very small A-level cohort, but they do get an absolutely outstanding you know, ed education at, at our school. But it is only because of their willingness and kind of their cheating the system almost to break away from that very narrow band that schools are constantly being pushed into that they're able to pursue their kind of love of art. So really, for me, the, the key thing is, unfortunately, until that big political message of STEM is changed to STEAM, we're going to be in a situation where those things happen progressively more and more and more. Interesting. Um, Sangam Amina, do you want to come in on this? I think in answer to the question, it doesn't say anything terribly good. Um, I mean, I think they would argue there wasn't a demand, but I think that in itself doesn't say anything terribly good. And, and I, I do actually think it, it's the responsibility of policymakers as well as of teachers to, to turn STEM into STEAM. Um, because I, I try to imagine what architecture would be like without people having studied art. Um, what, would, what, would, what would technology be like without people having studied any form of creative, creative output whatsoever? It would be sterile and dull and actually probably not terribly good. So that, that's my answer. In short, it doesn't say anything terribly good. Um, just picking up on the STEAM, so at North Media Centre we refer to everything as STEAM, there's no such thing as STEM. And I was in Brussels just a couple of weeks ago doing a, um, at the European Commission Youth Forum um, doing a workshop on an integrated approach to STEAM education. So it's on the agenda um, for Europe, and not that obviously we are part of Europe, but it's, it's, on, it's big on the agenda for them to move more to um, an approach to STEAM. I think in terms of art history um, coming out of the curriculum, um, obviously it doesn't look good. It says that it's not valued, it doesn't count. Um, but I guess from, from my, from, I guess the way that I would see it personally is that in any kind of historical communist state, not that we're a communist state, but the first thing you take away is people's right to express themselves. So if you want to control the way people think, you take away their you know, freedom from the arts and uh, music, and so there's a conversation going on there. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, um, on the flip side of that, um, a lot of um, creative subjects um, at university level and college level don't actually take into consideration um, a wider spectrum of history. So does art history include black art history and is that marginalised and therefore if you take away art history, there's a whole demographic of people who don't actually get art history for the races that they are anyway. So It's an interesting challenge around this, this wider curriculum thing as well. I'll, I'll test Darren. I always feel very comfortable asking Darren particularly challenging questions because I know he's very keen on them. So um, uh, there, there's, the, the history of art thing is really germane to the, to the situation we find ourselves in now. And if you look at quite a lot of higher education institutions as well, the speed with which the courses that are offered have adapted over the last 10 or 15 years has been dizzyingly quick. And I think, you know, you, you think back two or 300 years and universities would have probably, I don't know, offered courses in ornamental tapestry and calligraphy and things like that. So it's it's right, isn't it, that there is an evolution of programmes that are offered, whether that's at GCSE, A-level, foundation degree, whatever. But how do we make choices between, in, in terms of adapting and evolving what we offer as educational subjects without 
losing the best of, uh, of what we've built up over generations? Well, I think that um, for me, there are, if we, had, if we could narrow it down to three words and we could say every young person who leaves school had these three things, you know, and I never want to be accused of saying that I don't believe that numeracy and literacy are important facets of, of going to school. And, you know, you've got to be able to read and write, you've got to be able to add up. But I would say if we take numeracy, literacy, and added creativity as to the third pillar of, 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 a, of, a, of a proper rounded education, and we gave that, that was the lens through which we looked at everything, then I think we'd be in a pretty good place. So, you know, yes, it does sadden me when I see and hear that the history of art disappears. It, it was, you know, as we've heard, a, a, a pretty small subject, but, and, and that in itself is something that I think um, is, is a shame too. Um, but to not have it offered at all uh, is regrettable. But I also think it's, it's not just about being able to, to learn about what's happened in the past. I think for a good creative education, a good cultural education, is about enabling young people uh, to be able to make their own art, to be able to understand that continuum of growth. To answer your question, Phil, for me, you know, art and culture doesn't sit uh, preserved at one point where we then don't do anything more. It's happening all the time. And one of the things we, won't, we want young people to be able to do is to be able to have a reaction to that art, to actually see something and say, I like that, um, and to know why they like it, and to be able to put into words how it makes them feel, what it makes them think, um, because we want the best art to be provocative. Um, and, and so part of young people's education must be about having that, um, the, the critical faculty to be able to respond. But also, there are some skills around, around becoming an artist. So if you want to play the piano very well, you are going to have to practice the same things over and over again. If you're going to become a really brilliant uh, painter, you're going to have to practice it. And there's no shame in that as well. So some of this is about actually sitting on your own and learning how to practice things over and over again. And there's no shortcut to that. And I suppose one of the things that I, I always feel that um, annoys me slightly is that um, in sport, um, an elite, I don't mean elitist, I mean an elite, uh, is seen as being something that's absolutely brilliant. But when we start to talk about elite provision around art and culture, and you'll know this as someone who studied the cello at a very, a very high level, um, uh, sometimes people can be a little bit sniffy about that. Well, actually, we want to have elite provision, the best provision to get people all the way through their journey, uh, as a, through their journey through education, to go as high as they possibly can. At different points, they will uh, step off that journey, and that's absolutely fine. We want them to be culturally literate citizens of the world. 100% of our young people coming out of, of schools and colleges and universities should be culturally literate citizens of the world. Some of them will be trained to the very highest possible level to work in the creative and cultural industries, and we want them to be world-beating at that. And that's why we need that continuum of education. Great. Thank you very much. I think we are ready for the next question. And, and Phil Castang from Bristol Music Trust has his hand up very prominently in the front row. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's not really a question. Well, it's kind of a question. It's kind of a response to that issue. Working between DCMS and Department for Education, as music education hubs kind of do with the relationship with Arts Council and with the Department for Education, <laughs> I think there is um, perhaps a disconnect. I'm not entirely sure how to describe it about how we measure that journey that you just spoke about and how we measure excellence that can be done very easily at Department for Education or they, there is a mechanism for measuring excellence, uh, yet it is much harder to measure that journey in non-formal education and because we do both as a music education hub and many of us do 
formal education and non-formal, and we value them both equally. But when you look at the kind of diagrams and monitoring and evaluation that Department for Education use, it's pretty much not even a pyramid. It kind of starts with massive inclusion at the bottom and then just goes up as a spike like that, where all the other journeys are lost. So you might have whole class uh, ensemble tuition for 30 children. They might all be inspired, but you will only capture the journey for those that go on and take music exams, whereas those that go off on all kinds of other music journeys, or indeed creative journeys, are lost as soon as they kind of leave the, the formal music sector. I, I wonder how you view that disconnect, or if you see it as a disconnect, or, or as a positive, or, or whatever. So, let, 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 let us say, in extraordinary electoral circumstances, Thanga was elected Prime Minister tomorrow. Thanga, do you understand sort of all, all the yeah. issues Phil's raised there? How would we better reconcile DCMS and Department for Education and or other Whitehall departments to the maximum benefit of cultural education? Oh, you're giving me such a great fantasy there. Um, <laughs> uh, I've got a whole, whole list. And, and I think one of the things I'd want to do, Phil, is, is I would want to introduce them and get them to get along a lot better. I mean, the difficulty with government departments at the moment is that they're all in competition for funds, and so they don't see each other as allies. And that's my view as an opposition MP. People who've had more contact with, with government departments um, may have a different story, but that's my experience, is that, but for instance, there was a cultural strategy. The government published a white paper earlier this year, cultural strategy for the arts. And in many ways, you could see that it had at one point been a really good document. And then you could see that it had gone to the Treasury and they kind of snipped all the good, not the good stuff, but they'd, they'd snipped the money out. And um, whether we call it investment or subsidy or funding, you're still going to need some money somewhere, um, whether it's for a music hub or a symphony orchestra. And, and so it was a real disappointment and a missed opportunity. And, and I felt frustrated, actually felt a feeling of fellow a feeling for Ed Vasey, who was at that time my counterpart, he was the Minister for Arts, now Shadow Minister for the Arts, because I felt that he had he has a real love of the arts and he had, I believe, genuinely wanted it to be a really good moment for getting different government departments not to counteract each other in trying to produce excellent variety, uh, a variety of excellent journeys through the arts for all sorts of abilities and for all sorts of children with all sorts of needs. Um, you know, I, I I think that the journey I had, for instance, which was I went to a specialist music school and I studied at a very high level, um, there were a series of accidents involved in that. And that series of accidents, I want to reduce the number of accidents to getting people to an excellent arts education. But also that there shouldn't be this great gulf in between, which there is for some children. I think in Bristol we're really lucky that we've got you and, and, and others. Um, but for an awful lot of, of children in some parts of the, of the country, I feel that there, there are A, too many chances between them and an excellent cultural education if they are going to be top-class elite performers or creators or artists, but also too much chance associated, as Darren's mentioned about, you know, whether or not you have a head that wants to invest in the arts or a, or a chair of governors that doesn't, which could also happen. Um, you know, that, that's too much. There are too many chances there as well. So I would like DCMS, if I was Prime Minister, Phil, I would... I would drag DCMS and DfE and the Treasury and get them into one room and get them to start talking to each other, but I would then also want to bring in what used to be called BIS and is now called BEES or something, which is Department for, for Energy and Industrial Strategy, because I think industrial strategy people also need to be talking to the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. 
and not just the Department for Education, because I think they think of the Department for Education as providing sort of, you, you put children in at this end and Department for Education does things with them and then it churns them out at the other end and there they are fit for industry. And that doesn't involve, that policy making discussion, I don't believe, involves enough thinking about what part culture plays in it. So that's what I do if I was Prime Minister, amongst many other things. That's what I do before breakfast. Good work, excellent. Not so much a pledge as a manifesto commitment. We really are going very, very well indeed. I wonder if I could spin that question around a couple of times now. So, Mina, in terms of Norwest Media Centre, which is incredibly successful at working across <coughs> so many different areas, whether it's social inclusion, children and young people, uh, culture, social enterprise, all of those different things, from a local government perspective, perhaps, what, what would be the things that could happen that could just make it easier for you guys to do business? With other providers or with? Yeah, if, if you could put all your stakeholders in a room mm -hmm. and just organize them in such a way that it would make life as easy as possible for Norwest Media Centre to do the good work it does more straightforwardly, more efficiently, more successfully. What, 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 what sort of change would you like to see? I think first it just needs to be about shared outcomes across the board. So for example, working um, with schools, um, if it's on their agenda to work with the community, then that would make our life a lot easier because then they would have to work with us regardless of whether they wanted to or not. We do have really good relationships. <laughs> we do have really, or, the, or if they have time to work with us or not. And we have fantastic relationships with merchants. And merchants has been, uh, especially working with Tom, has been an example where it's actually worked really, really well. Where we've had a teacher who's been really committed to um, uh, um, arts and music education and has made it happen. But as soon as Tom either got promoted or got busier, that relationship is also an example of where it can fall down because if there's not that one teacher who's driving it, then the relationship gets lost. So for me, it's having those shared um, outcomes. I guess same with business. So for us, in terms of moving young people into the cultural sector, into careers, um, it's about having those organisations actually have um, the skill and the capacity to support young people. We can do loads of work around developing leadership, developing confidence, developing networks and we can hand them on, but if they go into an organisation for their second job after they've done an internship and that organisation isn't prepared to continue investing in them, they'll get fired or they'll lose that job and then they, they're right back where they started. So there has to be a shared uh, a commitment to upskilling the sector, not just on the first job, but the second job and then the third job. Um, and that also spans across, again, with diversity and ensuring that Again, you know, we're bringing young people in from diverse backgrounds, from South Bristol, um, from underrepresented groups, and we're developing skills and networks and confidence and all of that stuff. But if only a small part of the sector is also committed to that, those young people are not going to uh, be able to progress forward. Yeah. So okay. shared outcomes, shared value. Excellent. Very, very helpful. Thank you, um, Thomas. From uh, I want something I hear a lot from arts and cultural organisations in 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 sort of recent times is we find it harder and harder to engage with schools. Because in the old days, you'd ring up the LEA and there'd be some sort of magic wand, which I'm sure never really existed. But that <laughs> magically created introductions to schools across a, a, a place. Now it's much more polarised through academy chains and, 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 and so forth. What can schools and education providers do to make it easier for yeah. arts and cultural organisations to engage with them? I, I think um, there's a couple of things. I think what's happening as Phil was saying, that there's this disconnect between people. And um, as you were saying, with the old LEA, there was one contact and it was easy. What, what we've unfortunately created through academization in some ways are these pocket islands of schools that because they are competing for pupils and therefore the money that goes alongside that, they then have to 
focus in-house on, on, on themselves and you don't have the same shared, shared growth that you used to have in terms of when you had a, a local authority and as such we then struggle to link and actually what we should be doing is trying to create robust partnerships between schools so that, so that as uh, Mina quite rightly says, then if one person does move on, then there is someone else c that can pick up the mantle. Like we were very lucky at my school this year, we actually won a national award for our music department, and that was purely, I was expecting a little round of applause there, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> No, I wasn't really. So. <laughs> you got it um, anyway. But the, the reason that came about was because of our partnerships with the likes of the Bristol Music Trust, the likes of Norwest Media Centre, the likes of the Bristol Ensemble in Bristol. It wasn't because of what necessarily what we were doing in-house, but it was that we were able to link with other cultural entities and create this equality of access that is really important. And the difficulty is, is that because of you know, the disconnect between organisation at a governmental level and this culture of competition where we're fighting over smaller and smaller pots of money, schools are having to become even more insular and it makes that, that challenge even greater, I suppose. Yep. Thank you very much. Um, and Darren, I mean, we, we spend 80% of our working lives trying to affect alignment between whether it's government departments or local authorities or, you know, sort of other partners. Where organisations have got brilliant ideas but really limited amounts of time and a, a desire to get stuff done. What's the best advice you've got for them in terms of effective partnership working? Just do it. <laughs> Excellent. So, so <laughs> now is not the time for large corporate slogans from America. But um, I, 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 I think that there's another pledge there which is, uh, and, and you know, sort of the, what, what Phil said with his initial question, that really, really resonates for me as an issue and I, I just think every time you're finding it difficult to work with stakeholders because one person is saying one thing and one person is saying another whether it's government departments public bodies whatever reveal it yeah. try to bust through it and if you can't co-opt others yeah. to escalate it as an issue because that's the only way we're going to get better partnership working and I think if all of us commit to doing that we ought to get more done yeah, yeah. I think fine right another pledge in the book um, I don't know if anybody's writing them, them down um, middle of the row at the back Hands everywhere. Oh, there's oh, the, some enthusiastic hands up in the gallery. <coughs> there are a lot of hands up. This is, this is going very well. Splendid. Hi. I wondered uh, what's next for creative apprenticeships. What's next for creative apprenticeships? Okay, I think, let, it, with your permission, I will also take a question from about four rows in front. Um, I'm aware of all of you at the back, and we'll, we'll come back to you, but we'll take these two questions together, if that's possible. Um, I... Uh I think it's great, the match funding for internships. Um, I recently found out, so I did um, an internship at Alexander McQueen about 10 years ago. Um, I was paid £2.50 a day, and I had to move to London to do my work placement there. Um, since then, I thought that uh, unpaid internships had become illegal, but maybe I'm wrong, because I recently spoke to... Um, fashion students at UWE who informed me that it's exactly the same and people are still having to work for nothing. We're educating people, we're wanting to educate pupils to work in the creative industry and they are not wanting to pay them. When I was at McQueen there were 35 interns and 30 employees who were on their payroll. So the company is running on free labour. Why, why are we allowing this to happen? Why are we raising the aspirations of people to work in a creative industry 
and then actually it's not equality it's not a, it's not a way in okay great thank you um so to take those two questions in in order um darren first perhaps um what's next for creative apprenticeships um we are very committed to the arts council uh, to investing in what we, we talked about goal five uh, in uh, goal four which is around creating skills for the future and we're looking to see what is our next program of funding we will do there will be money invested in this area from 2018 to 2022 uh, and uh, our current funding is, is there as well we've been putting more in place so there will be something coming in um, we want to make sure we're taking public money and using it in the most cost-effective way uh, so there will be something there on that uh, in terms of uh, uh, internships um, I think it's a real challenge, and I think um, it, it, there is what worries me the most is for those young people from people from tougher economic backgrounds, even getting the bus fare across town to get a creative apprenticeship is, is, is an impossibility, let alone going and living in another city. So I do worry in terms of uh, the diversity of our talent base. I think it's really, really important that we find a way of equalising this out. Uh, so I think we have to do more. There are some glimmers of hope. So, I mean, I um, worked a lot in, in, in media uh, before I came to this job. And I know, for example, Universal Music pay all of their interns. And they pay them, I mean, they don't pay them a huge amount of money, but they pay them enough to be able to live in London. Uh, and it's above the minimum wage. And, 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 and that's actually, and of that program, many of them go on and get jobs within the company as well. And they, they interview very hard to be an intern. It's not just about uh, something you can just sort of jump into because you fancy it. It's very, as you can imagine, the world's biggest music company, record company, it's very, very sought after. But actually, they've got a very sensible program there. So I think that sort of employer, private sector employer, uh, it should be commended for doing that. Um, I don't think everybody in the media and creative industries are in that place. Uh, I think um, they should move to in, that, in that direction. Thanks, Darren. Um, Mina, what would you like to see in terms of how creative apprenticeships are developed and taken forward? And in terms of a fair day's pay for a fair day's work for people working in arts and culture, whose responsibility is that and what should be done about it? Um, I think for me, it's uh, from an organisational perspective, it's an organisational responsibility. So um, just, to, just to point out, at Norris Media Centre, we don't do unpaid internships. We do offer paid internships. Um, we do have an apprenticeship program. Um, and from my side, just moving more towards not just doing apprenticeships, but all using the language of internships, because that in itself, even if it is paid, creates a barrier. Um, it's just about doing entry-level jobs. So it's not about having a qualification next to it. It's about getting an entry-level job and learning on the job as you go through and also about bringing back Saturday jobs. When I was 15, I worked in the Chinese takeaway and I'd worked, by the time I left university at sort of 23, 24, I started a couple of times just on different courses for different reasons. Um, I'd, I'd already been working for, you know, nine, 10 years and I was working at university with people who'd never had a job in a day in their life. Those people would go on to have better careers than I did for all different reasons of equality and networks and so on. Hence why I designed the programs I do now. But the point I'm trying to make is that for us, um, especially at Norwest Media Centre, especially being inside Bristol, there's a demographic of young people who aren't going to come and just join a project and get skills that way. They're not going to come for creative leadership, but they might come for a job. So if we are able to create Saturday jobs where you work three or four hours a week doing creative journalism and so on, from my side, we're still going to give them the same level of skills, um, but they're coming for different reasons. And it's for us, the reason we're able to do that and the reason why I feel comfortable offering as part of our Young People, Young Adults program, offering some paid internships, some apprenticeships, 
some creative leadership programs where you, you volunteer your free time, some after-school activities and some Saturday jobs and some full-time paid, you know, entry-level jobs. It's because we have a spectrum of an offer that appeals to different young people, but all of those young people and young adults go through our same theory of change. So whether you're 10, 15 or 30, it's about being creative, being engaged, having an experience, widening your networks, um, getting, developing new skills and ultimately having the confidence to then take X, Y and Z. So for me, it's about an organisational commitment to saying we are going to employ um, emerging talent because we recognise that that energy and that perspective is always needed. We're going to ensure that we have a diversity of staffing that represent the communities we serve. Um, we're going to ensure that we pay the living wage, not the minimum wage, not the minimum wage for 14-year-olds or 18-year-olds, but the living wage for the city, regardless of your age. Um, and we're going to we'll, we'll stay committed to doing that. What was your second question? Uh, it was the fair days, pay for fair days oh. work, so I think we're, we're, okay. we're, we're yeah. taking most time. And just, yeah, and, and also for us, you know, again, as a real commitment, especially um, in the programmes that I run around um, uh, working with freelancers. So we have an agency called Eight where we hire young people um, or young artists that want to work as freelance, but they're not interested in maybe doing all the admin or the project management, or they haven't got that skill from university. So we're saying, right, we'll manage all that for you and we'll employ you as freelancers along the way and we'll help you develop those skills if you do want to go on and have enterprise. So again, those people are paid on more of a premium rate and it's a scale because it's recognising that it is freelance. Excellent. Great. Thank you very much. Um, and, and Tom, when you th think about your students, when you look towards, look outwards at employers and, and, and sort of that, that wider world, in terms of things like um, apprenticeships, pay and conditions, how, how much do you see opportunity and how much do you see risk? Um, I think young people are hugely scared by what, what the potential they have from the outside world. You know, a lot of the, um, we, my school is in South Bristol, we work near MENA, and a lot of the young people there do not, as Darren quite rightly said, have access to, you know, the money to pay for travelling to other cities and that kind of stuff. Um, and they are concerned about the kind of jobs that they might end up with. I mean, I'm very proud of the work we do with the Old Vic Theatre in Bristol. And just the other day, Lucy from there organised a fantastic kind of careers fair to show young people what other opportunities there are in the arts. And I think from the kind of area that we kind of come from, there's a, a very narrow band of acceptable kind of jobs that families for generations have done and have done. And actually, it's about broadening as much as anything out the opportunities so they know do they know what jobs there are in the arts beyond just I do music, I must play music, I do drama, I must act. You know, it's about looking to widen their opportunities, I suppose, in various apprenticeships. And just to add on that, I think for us, one of the things that we've done with Change Creators is, and for, from my side it's particularly, is um, having travelled when I was a lot younger because I had this ambition to travel and save and so on, is the, the confidence that people have having gone abroad to work is bring you come back to the UK and it's like, oh, well, actually... Going to London is nothing. Going to Manchester is nothing because I went to Barcelona or I went to Brussels or I went to, you know, Pakistan. And so for us, there's a real thing around um, encouraging and supporting people to through our programs to go abroad, have that experience, um, and then say, do you know, what, you can move away. You don't have to stay in Bristol. Move away, upskill, and then come back for your city. Go where the work is. There's, there's a real culture around. I can't get a job here, but it's like actually go somewhere else then and then come back. I think for some areas in, in Bristol, and I'm sure in other cities as well, that journey, even from South Bristol to the centre of Bristol, ha is seems enormous. Mm. You know, I remember one time we went, we took a group of students from 
um, with the word which is where the school is to the old Vic and we got out the bus and one of them went are we in Bath you know that that journey I was like it looks like Bath but it's not Bath um, but that journey for them was that distance you know and actually you know Mina's absolutely right actually it is about looking beyond just where they are at the moment and seeing what is on offer you know out there really um, Thangam, the questions of um, fair pay, unpaid internships mm -hmm. and so forth, should we legislate on that or should we leave the market to make itself? No, we should legislate. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going for a um, short answer like that. Please, 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 no, 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 we should absolutely I'm legislate. It's, it, it's, it, it's exploitation, it reinforces elitism, it reinforces privilege. Uh, it makes uh, certain careers the provenance of only those who can afford to be subsidised or get in debt or who aren't scared to get in debt, and that again reinforces class divides. Um, and, but it's just a bad idea to cut a whole chunk of the population out from being uh, allowed to fulfil their potential. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for those industries either. So um, they're a bad idea. And I, I actually think market forces do have a role to play in that, but I think government should, should absolutely legislate against it. It's a bad idea. Thank you very much. Um, right, next question. The people who are waving very enthusiastically up at the back, I think they should be rewarded by getting to ask the next question. It's a real pleasure to hear so much ambition and so many different approaches to accountability and certainly around common causes, around community, education, mobility of persons and artists and young people and so on. Um, and I was just thinking what I would like to whet the appetite a bit more from yourselves is to perhaps give us examples nationally that you're seeing that demonstrate a closeness and harmony between the creative case for diversity and the cultural education challenge. Okay, thank you. Um, Darren, you, you, you spend more than half of every working week outside London, as you, you, you proudly tell us. Um, what have you seen that impresses you most at, at that, that joining point of creative case for diversity and cultural education challenge? Where, where, where's the best practice? I think um, one of the things I'm uh, very keen on when we talk about the Creative Coast for Diversity is I, I kind of look to the, to the end game with it. And one of the things I'd love to see is, in the truest sense, it becomes totally unremarkable. So my objective is that everything that we do and see, uh, the people that are making art and culture, um, the people, the gatekeepers who are deciding who the people are that are making art and culture, uh, are absolutely reflective of... Uh, the streets of England in the 21st century, and I think that's really, really important. Um, so a lot of the work, um, what I've seen, where, where I would say it's best practice, um, is where uh, you, you, you have organisations that are asking questions of themselves all the time to actually see, are we achieving that? So, uh, for example, uh, there's some very good work I saw in Coventry at the Belgrave Theatre, um, where um, they have communities uh, who sometimes uh, are not engaged in, in uh, art and culture in any way, but they found a way to talk to those communities and bring them into the theatre. And what you see there is uh, tentative groups where small groups get together and a quite, quite high intensity of working. But over, all, over time, their families become more involved, they see the value of, of that, uh, the, the drama and theatre work that they're doing in those young people's lives, and suddenly they, they take a bigger and bigger part in, in the... Uh, organization of what's happening at the theater so that's a really strong one I think um, other areas where I see it is where we look at areas where there's 
a complete lack sometimes of any engagement in arts and culture from any part of the community, usually because of economic reasons. And this, this goes uh, across people of all ethnicities, uh, but, but, and it's something that's uh, very much around, centered around uh, a historic intergenerational or a lack of engagement in arts and culture because nobody's ever shown these people they could have it in their lives. They just don't think it's for them. Uh, so when you look at things like In Harmony, for example, which is the project that we invest in around the country, uh, <coughs> excuse me, but, uh, based on the uh, El Sistema model in, in Venezuela, which is about using the symphony orchestra as a metaphor for the family. And what you see uh, where this happens is that whole communities suddenly, say in Liverpool, say the, the Liverpool Philharmonic Hall was previously for other people, it just wasn't for us, suddenly it's for their whole community and that's working really well. The other thing around the creative case of diversity uh, which I think is really, really important is that we uh, have a big journey to go on around disabled people people with disabilities and that is part of the creative case and you know we've still got a long long journey to do around people from BME backgrounds but here in Bristol there's some fantastic work being done uh, with some organizations open up music uh, it's, it's absolutely brilliant and we have the uh, the power orchestra uh, based here as well uh, and I think this is really really important because actually if we're we're still got a long way to go as I say on people from BME backgrounds we're absolutely terrible on people with from disabled backgrounds and we need to make sure that they're uh, they're having a much stronger role in, in reflecting the art and culture that we make but also that they're employed to make it as well um, I realize as a, a the chair, I'm not supposed to express any views of my own, which, as those of you who know me, I would find almost unbearably <laughs> difficult to, to do. But uh, can, can I offer up one in answer to that, which is um, there's an organisation in Swindon called Create Studios, who I think are an absolutely <coughs> fantastic model in terms of um, inclusion in it, 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 its broadest sense. Swindon gets a terrible press. It doesn't have a rich, profound, deep set of cultural institutions which are hundreds of years old. It has got a very young demographic. Um, Create Studios is fantastic, I think, at how it shares its cultural capital with people from all walks of life, all corners of society. It is there for all of Swindon. Its use of... Um, digital technologies and how it moves across different art forms I think is generous and open-minded and it's it's going to be a long time it's going to be a process of generational change in terms of how Swindon evolves as a place but I do think Create Studios are an organisation that are worth a, a search on Google if you have a spare five minutes. Um, other members of the panel um, well, what, what, what impresses you out there? Well, um, Darren stole my one, uh, which stole was the para orchestra, um, and I've been desperately trying over the past few weeks to kind of build a, a really strong relationship with the para orchestra in school. We've just opened a free school up uh, that was an old school that was linked to ours called Ventures Academy, which is a free school for young people with autism, and the para orchestra and Charles Hazelwood that runs that really do a fantastic job of trying to normalise music. Uh, f for that with people that have disabilities just to say that this is music happening it just happens to be done by people that have disabilities and it will be such a fantastic thing when hopefully we can get them in for the young people with severe autism to see that they can be just as musical as anyone else um, you know that, that was going to be my my big one Brilliant. thank you well I, I too was going to give the power orchestra a plug but I was going to say that there's other other, other, other examples such as the Can Do Co and Extraordinary Bodies and the work that's going on in Bristol Plays Music, um, which I think shows that in, you know, in Bristol and the West Country, I'm really rather proud 
of what we are doing in terms of disability access across a range of disabilities and also about making that integrated so that that is not just thinking that we're going to put this disa disabled people over there and we'll leave them over there, but actually thinking about how we have um, disabled and non-disabled people working alongside each other. And in the power orchestra rehearsal that I was at a few weeks ago, which was absolutely enchanting, there was a whole chunk of what was going on in the performance that wasn't actually accessible to some of the performers who had sight impairments, but was to me because it was in the planetarium and there was a whole thing going on on, on, on the roof. It was ex absolutely exquisite. But as a musician, I was just blown away because I'd never really thought properly before about how to play music, how to learn music, with a sight impairment. And you know, I'm ashamed of that at the age of 50. It's taken me 50 years. And one of the reasons I know that it has taken me this long is because at music school and in my music education and in all the youth orchestras that I was in as a child and orchestras and chamber music as an adult, I, have, I had never played with people with disabilities. Um, and, and reflecting on that now and thinking what an enormous wealth of talent was denied to the world of arts is shocking. But I'm going to add another little, another Bristol plug, and it's a South Bristol plug. Uh, and it's because I, I, I was introduced to these people on a day which is very <coughs> important to me, which was um, the work in Ilminster Avenue Primary School by Preludes, who have nothing to do with the Bristol Ensemble, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, got that right. And what was extraordinary about that, for those of you who don't know, was the fact that this is a, this is a school, uh, in, in, I don't want to call it an ordinary school because it's definitely not, it's extraordinary, but it's, it's mainstream school in South Bristol, uh, an area of high deprivation in many ways, and every single child wasn't just getting to learn a musical instrument that was the choice of the head teacher, you know, everybody play the um, ukulele or something, they were getting to play a choice, they were getting to choose. I, I was in an orchestral rehearsal of year twos, um, who were playing you know, br brass instruments, wind instruments, string instruments with confidence and competence in a minute room where I was really scared that they were going to break their instruments at first. And then, of course, they, of course they didn't break their instruments because they've been taught how to value them. They've learned how to, but they were being given an extraordinary inspiring introduction to music. And if any of you from, uh, are here from those ensembles, I salute you. Um, but I really, really felt that was a wonderful example because it was bringing the classical music that I have known and loved and, and enjoyed and given me great joy to children who absolutely positively, most of them if not all, but certainly a huge chunk of them, would not have had access to anything like the introduction to the range of instruments and the sort of music and the ex early experience of loving it. And the testament, the, the way I know it was working, one of the ways I know it was working was because the they were there on the day that the school was allowed the option of watching a football match in, in some sort of tournament that was on earlier this year that I know nothing about. I think there was a sort of world thing. And they were, oh, was it a Euro thing? I know I'm nothing about sport, nothing. So they, the children were offered, they were in the hall watching it, and as I arrived, the, the, the teacher said, you know, we, those of you who are doing your music now, uh, the classes, classes two and four and whatever it was, you need to come out and do music. There were no groans, nobody seemed to me um, to be annoyed that they were missing the football. Um, they went back to the football afterwards, to be fair, um, but it felt like they were as pleased to be doing music as to be watching football, and that just, just felt amazing. So, then. Can I, do you mind if I just add something to that? That <coughs> prelude is a fantastic example of where you're bringing music to an audience that would not otherwise have access to it. And as Darren said, that is actually something that's really important. There was a project that ran here a long time ago called DNA, which was uh, developing new audiences, and that was run by the Tobacco Factory, and that was something we were involved in. And actually, I think 
in a sort of kind of broader sense, the question is, how can we make sure that those links are accessed by everyone in kind of a broader sense? And that's just a fantastic example but of that. But I think the, the, the comparison I drew is, is that the, some people my age think back to a, a sort of halcyon days of the therapeutic music system in the, in the 70s, um, which in some, not all, local authorities meant that you could choose which instruments you played and you got taught to a high level and there were a range of youth orchestras, choirs, big bands, jazz bands, all sorts of things going on. I, I, I'm a good example of, I, I was in a, a local authority which had decided not to bother with that, not terribly much or not terribly well, and the neighbouring authority did it really, really well, so I sort of bust myself in sneakily. But that just reminded me that this is still, it was then, there is no halcyon days for me, but the peripatetic music system as it was then was wider and deeper than what we have now, I feel, and I do blame successive governments for not having noticed that that was having an effect. And I know that's just one art form, but I think it, it crosses other art forms as well. And I, I'm not going to just be part of political and say I blame the Tories, because that's too easy. Because actually, I think there have been failures by policymakers on all sides to notice what happens when you destroy a system like the peripatetic music system. And don't think hard enough about how to replace it. As I say, in Bristol, I think we do really well, but that's not true everywhere. Uh, Mina, in terms of creative places for diversity, that, that <coughs> intersection with children and young people, who, who and what impresses you the most? What, what, what do you see that, that stands out for you? Um, I think obviously I echo like, all the um, organisations and institutions that have already been commented on. I think for me, having um, moved from, I was in, I, I'm born in Bristol, raised in Bristol, I spent seven and a half years in London and I came back sort of last February. And when I left Bristol, um, organisations that existed were places like Kumba, places like Seed, um, Firstborn Creatives, and as at the time I was a black filmmaker, a black filmmaker, I'm still a black person. <laughs> at the time I was a, as a filmmaker, but those, those and, and St. Paul's Carnival was quite prominent at that time, and for me, like, those were the main institutions that I had gone to, and they were my um, access point and my network into parts of the sector, and through people like Rob from Firstborn and Sean Sobers from back in the day, they connected me to places at the time, which was Cypher Screen and Arts Council, and um, before it was Arts Council, I think. Um, and those kind of spaces. And so that was my way in. When I moved back to Bristol last February, I was absolutely like gobsmacked, shocked, and devastated by what I've come back to um, in terms of those type of institutions, especially that connected the BME community into the arts, no longer existing or existing in a much smaller state. Um, in terms of institutions falling, just to bring the connection, did the sort of, not the fall of the youth service, but the way the youth service in Bristol is also had those funding cuts and demise, there, there's no feeders. So for me, back in the day, it would be a case of you'd refer a young person to, this is an amazing opportunity, go and see it. Coming back to Bristol, what I see is big institutions, um, so places like Watershed, Arnolfini, Old Vic, and so on, amazing opportunities. And everybody's saying, you know, we want to diversify the, uh, this, this, uh, the, the, um, the sector, we welcome BME backgrounds, we welcome people from low social, and so on and so forth. But a lot of programs are, are, not, are not full when they actually come to, to deliver. And for me, that's because the youth service isn't yeah. doing those feeder programs. The other side is that um, because our sector isn't diverse, um, it's diverse, but it's not necessarily diverse um, in parts of it in terms of obviously race and uh, with people with disabilities. The, I guess the aspirations from young people mm. in schools, they're not seeing those people in those professions to say, oh, actually, I can do this or I can do that. So for me, um, I would say that a good example of the creative case would be Noah's Media Center. I so I work there. Um, and in terms of, and for me, like what I would go as far as to say is that I don't need the, I didn't need the creative case. 
in terms of, I've been in the sector sort of eight, nine years now, and my recruitment has always been diverse, and I've always considered economic background, gender, race, and I've always looked at the gaps in the market, and I've always targeted my programs, and I've gone above and beyond and made the relevant networks to be able to recruit a diversity of people. So I've never had that challenge. So um, creative case doesn't exist for me in, th in that sense. It's just me going to work. But I recognize by giving it a label and by having some stats behind it, it makes the case for people that may, needed, may have needed a case to be made. Um, so yeah, so at Lawrence Media Centre, we're doing it anyway. I think the other side for me is being based inside Bristol, um, there isn't a large demographic of BME young people there, and a passion of mine is um, working with BME uh, young people. Um, and so therefore, what I've done is I've just recently got funding for a project called Ojiji Purple. Um, I'm Nigerian by descent, so Ojiji is black in our tribal language, purple is the color of feminism, and actually recognizing that those spaces aren't existing in the city, I'm just saying, right, I'm just gonna do it myself. So we'll be launching a big conference next year, focused on working with black girls. And I think the, the idea around that for me is really around, because the sector isn't as diverse as it could be, whilst we can teach basic filmmaking skills, we can look at art history or music and so on, there's really powerful conversations that aren't happening around institutional racism or around um, sexism in the workplace. And actually you can get those basic skills, you can get your first job, but when you go into that all white environment and you've got to deal with people trying to touch your hair on a daily basis, which you, you know, those conversations aren't being had and actually that the mental stress that that would cause people in these environments makes people actually not want to go and work in those spaces or makes people not want to volunteer on those projects. So for me, having targeted schemes and targeted programs which are addressing um, the lack of diversity in the sector and giving the relevant skills to people that are missing those opportunities, but also it's given that extra layer of, of, the, of the needs of those groups to actually be able to survive once you do get into the industry. Because the reality is, you know, a lot of people that are in those sectors, they're not gonna die in 10 years, 15 years, and they're not gonna give up their jobs. So you're still gonna be a minority in those organizations, so how do you actually deal with the environment that you're placed in? How do you get your point across in the meeting without always being seen as the person who's raising conversations about race? Or how do you, how does your, you know, it's kind of given those leadership skills as well. That's, that's really powerful, and I think that there's, um, there's an issue there as well, isn't there, which is that I, I, I see day in, day out with, with cultural organisations across the southwest, which is um, the idea that actually you, you see, you look at the boards of cultural organisations, and oh, they are overwhelmingly, homogeneously white, middle class, etc. And the yeah. recruiting in their own image mm. issue cascades through the whole organisation. So board members tend to recruit board members who are like them. Those boards tend to recruit senior executive staff who again, resemble the previous senior executive staff, and it cascades through the organisation. And I, I think there is a fantastic challenge sort of awaiting the cultural sector, not just in Bristol or the Southwest, but everywhere, which is how, how do we make serious change and stratify it at every level of an organisation? And I think until we start thinking in that way, we're probably not really going to change the landscape that you've described. So for me, there's two things going on there. One is around... Um, uh, organizational, I guess, capacity building and training. So it's around mm -hmm. understanding and recognizing when you're, um, when you're performing an act that might be seen as sexist or oppressive, because people don't have those conversations. We don't discuss that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So people may not recognize that the actions they're doing are actually quite exclusive, or you are actually, you know, um, 
you know, literally pushing people away. The other side of that for me is why I've launched Change Creators in Bristol, which was a creative leadership programme. And as part of that programme, we do, dis again, you, you discuss gender and identity and race, and it's about our responsibility to ensure diversity and what does that look like and what actually is positive action and how do you actually implement that and how do you get comfortable with saying it's okay to do this um, and, and the value of having different voices and people mm -hmm. from different backgrounds and recognising that diversity isn't just about race, of course, it's about so many other things. And obviously, people with disabilities, you know, intersectionality crosses all of that. So, if all of us in this room did one thing to support the change creators agenda, what should we do? Um, what should you do? Yeah. Um, if you've got money, fund it. Um, if you've got, <laughs> if you've got, a, if you've got a venue, then sh uh, then let it be, then share it. Um, and if you are networked with anybody, young people, then encourage them to go on it. Excellent. And we are all now pledging to do that, aren't we? So uh, a Google search of change creators. The new, the new cohort isn't actually up live Ooh, yet, okay. so just keep your eyes open for it. But, but you can do, but people, it doesn't, it's not about change creators, you know? It's about that for all programs. For me, I yeah, see programs yeah. for organizations all the time, and I proactively will see what's happening at Watershed, what's happening, you know, Old Vic, and I'll be proactively saying to people, you should do this. I literally talk to people on bus yeah. stops, like, Excellent. Have you seen this? So it's about a collective approach to promoting all programmes and not fighting for, you know, participants. Excellent. Lovely. Thank you. Um, do we have more questions? Yes, in the second row. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm, I'm privileged to be a trustee here at the Arnold PD, but I also work for the British Red Cross in their education department. And I'm interested to hear your take on, um, you know, we talked about your, uh, really, it's being a really fast-paced world with lots of uh, kind of media coming at young people, a really digital world. And how does the arts kind of play a role in helping young people deal with those humanitarian challenges and media challenges that, that they're seeing? Okay. Um, can I start with you? How, how can we use arts and culture to, to make sense of a fast-changing world? Um, well, you, you mentioned, I think you said the word humanitarian as well in there. And, and, and so some, something struck me that um, the, the, the jungle, the camp of, um, where refugees were living until very recently in Calais, um, there were people who have been out there from this country to take arts, to take theatre in particular, and I think they got a bit of flack for a while. And uh, I, I met with them and, and said, you know, why are you doing this? What, what, what are you trying to achieve? And they said, we're trying to make the point. We're trying to give people an experience that takes life above mere existence. And I've come across other arts projects that have worked in refugee camps as well. And so I'm, my, one of my roles in Parliament is I chair the all-party group on refugees. And art doesn't get a discussion point very often in our meetings, um, but we've started to sort of look at that because refugees are a good example of what, what, how are we treating people beyond making basic needs met. And in the case of refugees, very often their basic needs are not being met in any case. Um, but we tend, I think we, we're, we're in danger of treating a whole group of people, and it's, it's a very large population of the world now, refugees. It's, a, it's never been a higher number, and we're going to have more refugees as humanitarian crises develop, such as that are caused by climate change, for instance, and that's already happening in some parts of the world. Without arts to help, A, make sense of that for the people involved in those, but B, transmit information to other people beyond those areas. I, again, I think you know, that would be, it would be difficult to see how we're going to get past some of that. I think we, we, 
when we treat, say, refugees just as units that need shelter and food and some sort of legal process, we are denying their humanity and we're also denying our own humanity. Um, so I think arts play a huge, have the potential to play a huge role. And I'm very interested in what sorts of things arts organisations would like to do to get to those even harder to reach communities, such as refugees who have no rights very often, no status, no money. Um, but often, and this city is a good example, I met some refugees yesterday who are destitute at the moment because they're in that in-between process between having a failed application and probably having that failure uh, re rejection on, on appeals that they will actually be granted status, who have got nothing to do. They're not allowed to work. So, and they are desperate to work or to do something or to be part of something, to feel part of the community. So I've just picked one area there, and I hope you don't mind me doing that, but I just think it's, it's, it's an area which I have to know something about. I would really like those of you involved in the arts in this room to think about how are you reaching out to refugees and asylum seekers in this city, because Bristol is a city of sanctuary. And I think that's part of the role of the arts that has sometimes been missed. And I think sometimes gets criticised when arts people do do it, of saying, you know, why are you trivialising their experiences by taking a theatre company to them? Because their lives should be more than just living in, in horrible conditions. And, and it's not either or. And I think that's a policymaker. I'm often have I, I get that question chucked at me, and I know councillors and the mayor do, do as well. If you're doing this, you should be doing that. Well, how about we try and do both? How about we try and treat humanitarian disasters properly and make arts part of that? Because it says something really profound about us as as human beings and as a country that we say not only are we going to welcome you and give you sanctuary, but we think you are worth involving in our art scene and asking you what your art scene. And what we can learn from you. So that was my pitch. Um, is, is there any for intermediaries, do we think? I, I, do arts and culture, so I think on balance, most arts and cultural organisations in somewhere like Bristol are instinctively empathetic and would want to engage with the agendas yeah. you describe. Do we know how to develop those conversations, who to talk to, how, how to well, make that strategic? Um, I think that you, it's, it's, there's an emerging sense of who you might talk to. So there are refugee organisations, and refugee organisations I talked to this week and said, you know, what about volunteering opportunities? What about involvement in, in cultural activities? Said, you know, they are struggling a little bit to cope with the demands, but they yeah. weren't saying, no, don't bother us. So I would say if anybody does want to get involved, for, as a first point of contact, you are welcome to contact me because that's part of what I'm trying to do as chair of the APPG is to think about how we welcome refugees across not just finance, so that's essential, and the legal process and the housing, but what else does, what else do the, does integration into this country mean? And for me, it means a cultural exchange because very often these are people who have had to leave with nothing in terms of possessions, but they've brought with them huge cultural riches. So in terms of who to talk to, there are some organisations emerging, but I wouldn't want to name them today because I'm trying yeah. to work out with them what the boundaries are. So if you are thinking you might want to do that, please yeah. get in touch with me and I will make that possible. Okay, um, so I'll, I'll make an Arts Council pledge here and some of my colleagues will now look nervously at me. But <laughs> I, I think from our point of view, we, we are happy to put someone up and make it their role and responsibility that would be great. to act as a point of liaison in Bristol. That and then we can maybe work out how we develop that conversation together. That'd be amazing. Okay, so Thank you, Bill. Another pledge. They're all volunteering each other. I'm writing this down. This is Excellent. great. Uh, watch our office closely tomorrow for <laughs> further developments. Um, Mina and Tom, in, in, in terms of engagement with 
refugee communities? What, what, what are your experiences? What, what, what are you seeing happen? Are, are you, again, how much does that feel like opportunity and progress? And how much does it feel like an undeveloped conversation? Um, I mean, as, as we're saying, the, the demographic of South Bristol is such that there is very limited um, kind of links with refugees. We've had a few Somalian students at the school and they did unfortunately face some, you know, racist comments and that kind of stuff. And that is purely because the young people in the area where the school is just do not have access or don't see refugees as normal. And as such, they become scared. And when new people arrive in, in their kind of, in their space, I suppose, they are freaked out by that and actually that is something that we would love to build on more and hear share some of the stories that young people that young refugees have had with our young people to kind of develop their awareness of the horrendous challenges that they've, they've sort of faced really and I'm not sure about Norwest Media <laughs> Centre. Um, I think that for us um, especially around the whole Brexit time lots of conversations were sparked sort of yeah, you know, just true, within our yeah. informal setting and that just comes down to having you know, a staff team that's able to mm. actively challenge those comments and the, the, the views that are coming clearly from the home or from the media um, and using, you know, projects just in-house with 10 and 11-year-olds to kind of challenge the, that, those belief systems without importing our own, but um, something that's, yeah, because depending on who they say, whatever they're saying in front of will depend on how they get a reaction to. Just in terms of, on a, on a sort of a wider scale, just looking at general humanitarian crisis or social inequality, for me, you know, the cultural sector has an, an integral role to play. and. I think, just as one example, we know on social media, uh, videos are the most shared thing back on Facebook. It was photographs, it's gone back to videos again, and photographs, and, and, that, and they're really powerful in terms of the message that they send. Um, and so for me, um, yeah, I think the concept has a, has a massive role to play um, in terms of sh helping shape and influence the way people think, feel, act, regard, uh, you know, on those type of uh, issues. Um, with, again, with the media centre, the media centre itself is located inside Bristol in a deprived area, you know, the, the first project was an example of social action taking place for the inequality and deprivation that area is facing, and our very existence is born and evolved over 20 years. It's our 20th anniversary this year, 20th party is next week, by the way, the week after next, Google it if you want to come. But 20 <laughs> years worth of everyday activism um, as a media centre, providing access to those communities, messaging um, and supporting communities currently through our Bristol approach to tackle social and economic issues through using tech and media. So our whole existence is based on that. Um, the other side of the coin for us with programmes like Change Creators and my project, the GG Purple Project, it's around creativity, activism and politics. So we use arts, creative, media as a, as a tool, but the hook is around social change. So we engage people by what's something that you're passionate about, something that you care about, something that you want to make change on, and the, the media and the arts is just a tool for that bigger agenda. Um, so I think we have a responsibility to ensure that people um, are able to, to use use that access and use that tool once they have it for social good. I think, yeah, I think there is an issue with young people are absolutely bombarded by social media and Twitter and we have huge challenges at school around kind of sexting and, you know, bullying and all those kind of issues. And actually, I think what Mina provides and other organisations in Bristol provide and hopefully schools facilitate through uh, hiring in people like Unique Voice is... is enabling students to bring challenging stories that they've had in their ex existence and create a safe space where they're able to share them irrespective of the sort of kind of political story around it whether it be refugees or lgbt issues actually what we need to be doing is is taking young people away from 
just using, using social media for good and then point, using social media to point them in the direction of, of a space where they can be safe to discuss the kind of issues that we've been looking at. Thank you. Um, Darren, I was, I was really taking by something Amina just said there. She, she, she used the word um, activist a number of times. We, we talk a lot um, within the Arts Council about how our expectation of organisations as being civic leaders as well as cultural ones. Um, do, do, do we think we need a bit more of a spirit of activism yeah. from the organisations we fund? Yes, I think, I think there's uh, two answers, I think. One, one is uh, around the unique role that arts and culture can play in this area. You know, these are tough times uh, and maybe uh, slightly intolerant times as well uh, in this country. And I think one of the things that the values that people have who work in arts and culture and the, the creativity can enable people to have conversations, and I think that's very, very powerful. So I think that in itself is a form of activism. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, one of the challenges maybe to people who run arts and cultural organisations is around thinking about that next generation of young people coming through and understanding how they do consume media. So, uh, you know, my challenge that I would put to the arts and culture sector is are they always creating content in a way that those young people can engage with? And if we want to hear uh, stories from uh, uh, right across the spectrum, um, we need to make sure that everyone is just as good at getting those stories out there. And I think commissioning and creating artistic work that will appeal to young people on their devices where they're, in, where they're, where they're consuming uh, all of their other media is really, really important. There's a risk otherwise that the arts and culture that we are talking about here, that we value very highly, could become irrelevant to those young people because they will never consume it. Because if you don't have a device-based strategy for delivering that content, you're not going to connect with them. And whilst it might be controversial to say, it might be a risk, but then maybe that's okay because it, that it was maybe relevant then and it won't be relevant in the future and maybe that's okay. And we, we, we've sort of <coughs> talked ourselves out of taking a lot of risk in the arts and cultural sector over the last 20 years, haven't we? So we should probably uh, feel comfortable about that. Right, time is short. One question over here. Anybody else could be asked? <coughs> Another one at the back, near to the to the to the previous people at the back. We'll take those two then uh, as our last questions. Okay, sorry, it's quite a complicated one, but um, I think I'm after a pledge from Darren and Thangham, particularly, okay. about trying to turn the ship around in politics, and. I think that for those of us that are on board with the art and culture, um, art and culture are fine words to use, but you said lots of things, Darren, about what that education facilitates in young people. Mina pointed out how it hit a lot of things too, but particularly about confidence building. But my, one of my big concerns is we, at school, particularly these days, everything's learnt by rote and actually the art education is a bit like that too. And for me, I'm trying, trying to use the creativity word as opposed to the art word, because the art word is so loaded, people think, oh, well, you know, who's going to be an artist and what's art anyway? And, you know, talking about the unconverted, which probably none of us are, are but the government probably is right now, that the, 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 having a good creative education teaches you how to be self-motivated, teaches you problem-solving, <coughs> It teaches you how to think about things creatively so that when you've learned how to read, write, and add up, I mean, I don't think I've ever used logarithms or any of that in my life, you know, so a bit less maths and a bit more creativity. 
will turn out more creative people. I mean, traditionally, the UK's been one of the great inventors of the world. And we haven't got a lot of space for farming or anything else. So, like the Japanese, push the government, use the, the Japanese model. You know, they come out as the scientists because they've had creative education. So, not preaching to the converted, but really working on the government and maybe using the art, uh, trying to avoid the art and culture word a bit, which represents big institutions and represents elitism and things like that. And it's the value of, for me, art's about thinking. It's about developing your thinking. It's about working out your problems through a creative process that doesn't have a defined end and it doesn't have a learning by rote and then you can use that in your everyday life and in your work and everything else to get on. Excellent. I'll, I'll, I'll extract some fearsome promises from Darren and Thangam in a minute. If you want to use the word art, use the word art. It's all right. Okay. Um, can we uh, ask the question at the back as well, please? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on what Mina was saying about um, art and social change and thinking about the role of art and social change. One of the reasons that I feel sometimes that art is... Uh, quite easy to cut at the moment is that it's, we're, not, we're not very clear, we're not very good at advocating what art is for and what art does. And I think we're getting better and better at advocating <coughs> what it does in terms of uh, skilling young people for the creative industries and the work Darren's doing around that's really, really important. But we've got, we're, we're still not quite there in terms of talking about the role that art plays within society and why that's really, really valuable. Um, when John O'Confer had a show here uh, at the beginning of this year, he talked about how art is a space um, for presenting and discussing ideas before they become orthodoxies. I think that's a really, really exciting and really, really important thing that art can do. Um, that art is uh, about uh, building communities, identities, it's about challenging the status quo. Um, I, I think, uh, as someone who works for a cultural organization, my dream is to walk into school at some point uh, within the next, well, as soon as possible in Bristol and to meet with a head teacher I've never met before and then to turn around and say, the thing is, the reason we really value art in this school is because we see art as a space on the curriculum where we can close the door of the classroom and students can cease to subscribe to the rules and demands of society. They can challenge uh, the world around them. They can challenge uh, all of the status quo and all of the problems that, that we see around us um, within the world. And as cultural organizations, I think it's our, our role to advocate for art on those terms, and that's really, really important. But it's not just about us as cultural organizations doing that. That also has to come from every single person in this room, including uh, the Arts Council. And it also comes from schools' curriculums. It's really difficult when the GCC art curriculum basically says you need to demonstrate some skills and you need to have some historical knowledge. And that historical knowledge is also really, really limited and, and really excluding in lots of ways. And so how do we get to a point where we can, in one line, advocate for a form of art which is about social change? And that, that's why art's really, really important. And that's why it, it is so vital that it's not cut uh, at the moment from schools within, within the okay. UK. Thank you. So I will, I will take those questions in reverse order, and, and, and starting with Mina and Tom, um, how do we advocate for art in terms of social change? Um, I mean, I have a little anecdote around this. At the, the last general election, or the general election before last, I took some sixth formers to a performance, and on the way there we were discussing around politics, um, talking about their kind of views and who they might vote for. It was the first time they were able to vote. First off, one of them said, I'm going to vote for David. I think he's in the Orange Party. Uh, which was, I was like, okay. And then the next person said, well, my family have said they're going to vote for the BNP to stop the spread of Ebola, which was obviously a fairly horrendous thing for this 18-year-old child to have said to me. 
And I was like, hang on, stop there a minute. And we have, we, I was, luckily I'm their drama teacher, so we then spent the next three or four weeks using, in exactly the way you suggested, using our, I binned off what we were doing in the, for their A-level for a couple of weeks, and we literally sat down and started breaking down those pre preconceptions by talking about immigration and creating a piece that was around, around immigration. And I think that what we need to be doing in schools is enabling teachers to react to what young people say. I mean, I was abs obviously absolutely horrified by uh, that, that statement, and, and I took it upon myself. I was, you know, as my, in my role as an educator to absolutely refute that. And it was only, you know, I'm not sure the head teacher would, if they'd been in my lesson that time, I may have been you know, chastised, I suppose, for ignoring the curriculum for a little while, but actually allowing educators to feel comfortable enough to do that is really important. But also, I kind of feel that you know, we are in a stage at the moment for lots of lots of reasons where educational policy has become this thing about STEM. And actually, earlier we were talking about Trojan horses before the event started. We need to, in art, find a way of being, taking art into maths, taking art and culture into um, English and science and worming our way in so that all those places we infect the rest of the curriculum and then there's no way that the government and other heads can then turn us away because we're so embedded in everything, every strand of, of the school. So I guess that's kind of... Thanks. Thank you. Mina? Um, just thinking, just listening to your story about those students, I worked with a team of young Muslim women back in the day when I was in Bristol, and um, they were yeah, all between sort of the age of 13 and 19, and they wanted to go to um, a peace march about Palestine, free Palestine. So we took them to London, peace march was fine, everything was going great, and then it kind of got a bit hazy. Everyone started like running through the streets, got really out of control. I turn around and I see Bilal, one of my like 16-year-old, one of the guys came on the trip as well, doing a flying kick into Starbucks window, and everyone was going, blah, 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 the window's being smashed. Then I turn around and I see the youngest of the girls group, Muna, with a rock in her hand. I don't know where she got a rock from in central London. And she turned and she was doing this, free Palestine! And she went to throw the rock. And I literally grabbed the rock. And I was like, no! Like, freaking out, thinking I'm going to get fired. I lost my job. It was awful. We got caged in by the police. Long story short, you know, we finally got freed, whatever. In the minibus on the way home, what was that about? Where did that come from? Oh, we can't, you know, we can't do anything, we can't do anything. So how can we channel this anger, this aggression? What they came up with was let's do um, a hip, um, an Islamic hip-hop music event to raise awareness about what's happening in Palestine and do a fundraiser. And then they spent six months and they did an amazing event at Circle Media. And the point was that, that project, years later, we talk about that project even now, and I'm still connected with them and the impact that that has on their lives. A young person went to that event, and years later, she they would then come to inter not intern work for a enormous media centre, and she said, "I'm half Palestinian." That was the event that made me ask questions to my mum about Palestine, and that's my first memory of understanding what that was. So the power of art is obviously there. I think for for me, in terms of um, where I should go, it's 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 obviously integral to sort of be an integrated approach to STEAM education. It's integral to um, obviously young people's development and within society. And I think just in terms of just with the last thing I say, with in terms of this integrated approach to learning art. I gave an example to some uh, people earlier about if you're learning about Vikings at school, you might go to art class and draw Viking boats. You might do, you know, um, write about Vikings in English. And actually, the way we would do it at the media center is we'd say, right, let's build a Viking boat. And as part of building that boat, we're going to design the ship, and that's art. And we're going to do math by working out the calculations. And we're going to, you know, and so on and so forth. So for me, there's there's a thing around having having themes, not subjects and products, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. having an integrated approach so it's interweaved throughout you know, the whole curriculum as a, as a whole. 
um, rather than it being this separate, separate, separate. Yeah, I mean, I worked in a school previously to work in Bristol where that was exactly what we did. We took space as a theme, and then it was all around kind of a journey from one from where you took off on space, and that, that was like literally exactly what we did. We used maths, we used science, and we created something that young people were just so embodied in that they, they couldn't get away from having art as part of that. Thank you very much. And to take our final question then, um, so um, the critical importance of art and culture to our daily lives. Um, Darren and Fangam, one thing you will do next week on the back of this event this evening that you hadn't previously considered doing that will further amplify the role of arts and culture in public life. I thought of one. No pressure. Um, no, no, no. I thought of one while Darren was speaking because I have read Darren's book and, mm. and I, I can think of three policymakers that I believe really need to read it. Mm. And so I'm going to send this to them, but I'm not going to say who they are. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. Will you whisper it to me? I afterwards? might whisper it to you afterwards. But I, I think, it, it, and if you haven't read it, it is the, the question about how do we advocate for the value of the arts. I mean, I think honestly that, that, that book contains a lot of things which I already thought but puts it way better. And it's in a handy sort of orange cover, if I remember. It's very bright. Very bright. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose the interesting is easy to make a pledge in many ways because actually this is actually what I do every day. Uh, and so you know, uh, I believe very passionately in this. It's very. I have a great job because I actually believe completely in it. So uh, yes, I will continue to keep advocating to government. Um, I do. Uh, believe passionately in uh, that creativity uh, have a, should have equality with numeracy and literature, sorry, literacy in schools. Um, and we will keep making that message to everybody. Uh, it's there in the two independent reviews I wrote for government and I haven't changed my opinion on, on, on any of the things I said in 2011 and 2012. So we will keep going with that uh, and we will keep making the case. I also think as an arts council, to the other question, which is very, very important, is we're all about great art and culture. We're all about excellence. And I think sometimes we've, we've talked a lot today about the sort of instrumentalist uh, uses of art and culture, but there's something very valuable about just having great creativity and great creative people around you. And I never want to lose in all of the arguments the fact that we invest uh, public money, either from the National Lottery or from the government, uh, in, in great art and culture. And whoever you are, you deserve to have the absolute best. So we have, we only want to have the highest quality of art and culture for everyone. It's not about great culture for some of the people because they know about it and something substandard for the others because they won't notice. I want to see everything we do to be at the absolute highest level and that's really important. It is. And, and, that's, and, the other, and that's our goal too, of our goals, which is for everyone. Yeah. And I would add to that for everyone everywhere as well. Yeah. And it's in towns and cities and also in, in rural communities as well. And we've got, each of those will have different sets of challenges. Our job as an arts council is to make sure that we're investing money as, as wisely as we possibly can, but also that we're actually creating more demand. We want you to be more demanding of us. Um, you know, the more difficult problems we have in terms of choosing how to spend that money, the better, because actually that's there and, and the demand is growing. And that means it's taking a bigger role in our society as well. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, Sam, do you want to do a, a, a wrap up? Ed, can I ask you to put the slide up with the future dates on it for me? I'm, I'm speaking into the light that I can't see very well, so bear with me. Whilst that's coming up, um, these are future dates. This is the first of what we hope will be a series that's certainly going to go through this year and will respond to the themes, the ideas, the kinds of issues that are being raised through this. We'd really welcome you to join us in that, to come along to these events. There will be info on the website 
probably towards the end of next week, um, please check back um, and come and join us. You know, we want to be part of those conversations. On that thing, thank you very much to all of you for your participation, but please join me in giving the panel a very big thank you. I think it's been a brilliant evening. Thank you. I am ably informed by Helen over here that the bar is open if anybody would like to go and uh, continue the conversations, including cups of tea, etc. But thank you very much. If we move on out of here, um, pass it over and uh, we'll head outside. Thank you.